Bikini and Rich Linkoff. You know what time it is. Welcome to Legal Face Off. Two lawyers trading jab for jab. So hit them up with any questions you have. WG. Welcome in. Legal Face Off is live on Zoom, I guess. We roll on here. Rich Lankoff, Tina Martini. The Legal Eagles are in the house or in their bedrooms or wherever. My name is Sam Panianovich. I'm going to shave tomorrow, maybe. We shall see. And I'm hearing a little birdie, Rich and Tina, before we start, that Illinois could be opening sooner rather than later. I know everybody's excited about Somewhat that. opening, like a little bit. Cracking that door partially yeah. open, right? Yeah, you crack it open and then Tina will kick it down. Yeah, I'll, I'll kick down the door and end up in jail in the process, I'm sure. Well, I know a lawyer or two, luckily. Uh, thanks to Ben Anderson and Emily Flores, per usual. And seven guests, count them, seven guests today. We'll talk wow. about the following topics. Justice Thomas and his sudden outspokenness, the Ahmaud Arbery case, and Rita Crunwell back in the news. We'll talk about all the Queen's forces, plus the grab bag but let's get locked and loaded here right off the top with two guests, count them two, Timothy Johnson, who is the Morse alumni, distinguished professor of political science and law at the University of Minnesota, and Albert Lynn, a partner at Hunt and Andrews Kurth, former West Virginia Solicitor General and a former clerk to Justice Thomas, also a Naperville native. I have talked too much. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. I'm happy to be here. All-star panel. Professor Johnson, so as Sam mentioned, now that we have Supreme Court uh, oral arguments for the first time ever, we're learning a little bit more about the justices. And to everyone's shock, one of the big stories is that Clarence Thomas, who's famous for not speaking much during uh, on the bench during oral arguments, uh, it has been said that he has found that format to be a little bit too freewheeling and too much of a free-for-all, is now, you know, speaking out, asking a lot of questions. What do you make of the switch? Why is he suddenly... Uh, speaking so much from the bench. Yeah, I think that this is a rules change issue. I'm an institutionalist at heart, and that is as a political scientist and a legal scholar, I'm very interested in how the rules of the game affect political and legal behavior. Um, I have spoken with Justice Thomas on numerous occasions, obviously don't know as well as uh, Albert does, um, but it's been very clear to me over the years um, that he and I have spoken with one another that that argument is part of the reason he doesn't like to speak so much. That is, he finds it disrespectful that his colleagues from both the right and the left side of the bench um, interrupt one another, let alone interrupt the attorneys on a regular basis, and he just doesn't feel that that is appropriate. He likes to allow attorneys the chance to make their arguments in front of the court so because their time is so limited. And so when you move to this telephone oral argument, the court jumping into the 20th century rather really than the 21st century in this case. Um, Justice Thomas knows that he has time. He knows that there will not be interruptions. And he knows that he will be called on. And so what happens is, I think everybody held their breath when Chief Justice Roberts pointed to Justice Thomas for the first time, uh, figuratively over the phone and said, Justice Thomas, your turn to question. And suddenly he speaks twice. And and everybody just sort of blew up that first Monday in May. Um, But it doesn't really seem surprising to me, given my research, not only about Justice Thomas, but about oral argument more generally, that this format allowed him to be more comfortable. The one irony, and then I'll, I'll I'll be quiet on this question, is that it turns out that during the 81 instances where Justice Thomas spoke during these telephonic oral arguments, he actually ended up interrupting the attorneys 17 different times. So what he didn't like about oral argument, he ends up doing so. And that's probably a manifestation of not being able to see the attorneys. Well, he was pent up for all those years. He finally got a chance to let it all go. So, Albert, why do you think, what are your thoughts on why Justice Thomas has gotten so vocal? Sure. I, I, look, I think, I think Professor Johnson is exactly right. Uh, you know, everything that he said about um, what Justice Thomas thinks about oral argument, the justice has said publicly and, you know, privately to clerks. I think the main driver is that he, he does think that it is the oral argument time is an opportunity for the court to ask questions, but then to actually hear from the attorney, not just to ask questions to hear from themselves. And I, I do think that this sort of bears that out. I mean, you have, I was, I would say I was probably one of the few people, perhaps including the professor who weren't surprised by this. I was on an, um, a panel with a couple of folks being interviewed before that Monday and the two Thomas clerks who were on there, we both suggested maybe we will hear from the justice um, precisely because it's not that he doesn't have questions. He has them. Uh, and he's said before that, you know, in, in sort of deferring to the attorneys and to his other colleagues, oftentimes the questions he has get asked by others. And I think you saw that in the arguments 
last week, especially the first couple of days, where he would ask a question and then Justice Ginsburg would say, I had the same question, and Justice Breyer would say the same thing. So uh, I really think it was just a matter of a format that suits him better. I, you know, I don't think the court's going to stick to this. I think they're going to you know, go back as soon as they can to traditional oral argument, and he may go back to the way he's approached it before. But um, you know, for me as a former clerk, it's been, I think it's been sort of great and rewarding to see, you know, for everybody else to see the the intellect that we know, you know, the man with the incisive questions that who has grilled us behind closed doors, um, you get to see it, you know, in public and on display. Albert, we've had the privilege of having many former Supreme Court clerks on our podcast over the last six years. And it's really a fascinating world, and we always try to get some insights, and sometimes people are reluctant to divulge that information. We totally get it. But having worked for Justice Thomas for a year, as you did, um, and I think Justice Thomas is very unique in that people have a certain public perception of him. Even though he's been one of the longest-serving justices, people have a very specific perception of him. Of course, much of that due to the manner in which he was appointed to the bench and the controversy surrounding that. But is there anything from having worked for Justice Clerk for a year that you know that you could share with us that would surprise us? Um, You know, we've heard a lot, for example, about a lot of the justices being really funny. You know, there's a famous relationship that we heard about between Scalia and Ginsburg that was much different from what the public thought. So is there anything like that with regards to um, Justice Thomas? Sure. Yeah, I mean, as you, I think, expect, I mean, I'm pretty careful about talking out of school, but I I can confirm, I think, things that you've heard probably from other people, and the professor probably knows a lot of this having spoken to him. I mean, he he is in person perhaps the kindest, most gregarious and warmest person that I have met. And, um, and he, it's not just, you know, behind closed doors and chambers. Anytime he gets out to a public event, I think if you speak to any of the law students who he's seen when he goes to law schools, you know, he's the, he's willing to stay till the very end to shake every hand, um, to talk to every person in the room, uh, whether it's the law students or the staff. And I think Justice Sotomayor has said, and this I can confirm is true, I mean, Justice Thomas knows the name of every person who works at the Supreme Court, their families, you know, their kids. He asks about them. Um, You know, he's he's famously reticent on the bench. But I think in in private is maybe not even the right word. I would just say off the bench. um, He is perhaps the opposite of what you see. Uh, when he's sitting up there. Again, he's he's just very, very warm and caring, cares a lot about his clerks, but cares about everybody. And and the last thing I will add is he is also, at least to me, um, one of the smartest people I've ever met in terms of uh, recall and, you know, his incisive intellect and, you know, how well read he is. I mean, the man has read books that I've never even heard of before. So, um, it is, it is an interesting dichotomy that you point out, and I think most clerks have, you know, for him have observed that. But I think he would get the same message, frankly, from anybody who's clerked at the court. You know, there's a tradition of having lunches with the justices, and the lunch with Justice Thomas is often one of the favorites um, of the clerks from, from both sides of the aisle. Have either of you had a chance to see the PBS documentary on Clarence Thomas, the Created Equal documentary? Yeah. Professor, what are your thoughts on it? And do you think that it's an accurate depiction of him? And do you think that it gives us true additional insight into Justice Thomas? I mean, it's, it certainly gives some additional insight into Justice Thomas. I think some of the biographies written about him um, are perhaps uh, more insightful um, about the influences on him, not only in his childhood days, but in, in college as well as in law school and then beyond in his work in the Reagan administration and beyond. Um, you know, PBS certainly is is the the channel that put on this documentary, but the documentary was made, I think, for a particular purpose. And the biographies are written in that way as well. But I will say this: that in that in addition to the biographies that have been written, um, both um, those that are official and unofficial biographies, this really does sort of give you insights into why the justice may be reticent to speak on the bench, um, what his judicial philosophy is in terms of his thoughts on originalism and beyond, um, as well as what are social and economic influences that may be led to the jurisprudence that he holds today. 
Yeah. And I, I mean, I would add, I've, I've seen it too. And um, if you've ever read his book, My Grandfather's Son, a lot of what's in the documentary is very similar to that. I think for me, the takeaway is something that I try to tell everybody. I know and it means a lot to me as, as a first generation immigrant, a child of people who have come to this country. I mean, whatever it is you might think of Justice Thomas's jurisprudence, his story really is as quintessentially American as it comes. And when you watch that documentary, what you get that I think you don't even get from the book is a real sense of the poverty that he's come from. I mean, it's sort of an unbelievable rise from where he was to the highest court in the land. Mr. Lynn, Professor Johnson, thank you both for your time here on Legal Face Off. We appreciate it. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Rich Lenkoff is an attorney with Bryce Downey and Lenkoff. Rich is consistently recognized by clients like United Airlines, McDonald's, Macy's, Dollar Tree, and the Chicago Bears for his outstanding litigation results. In 2015, Target named him their top outside litigation attorney in the country. Rich has received a number of industry accolades, including Illinois Super Lawyer from 2015 through 2019 and Leading Lawyer from 2012 through 2020 designations given to less than 5% of Illinois attorneys. Rich is also an active member of his community, including serving on organizations like the Advisory Board of Legal Prep Charter Academy and the Board of Visitors for the Northern Illinois University College of Law. In addition to his full-time practice, Rich is a prolific producer with credits including Elvis Presley's Heartbreak Hotel, 85, the greatest team in football history, starring Barack Obama, Bill Murray, and the coach, Mike Ditka. Renegades, a live show in Las Vegas starring Terrell Owens, Jose Canseco, and Jim McMahon. In addition to co-hosting Legal Faceoff since 2013, Rich is the legal analyst for The John Williams Show on WGN Radio. Bryce Downey and Lenkoff is a full-service litigation firm practicing general liability, workers' compensation, professional malpractice, business transactions, and intellectual property, among other practice areas. For more information about Rich and Bryce Downey and Lenkoff, please visit BDLfirm.com. That's BDLfirm.com. You can like Legal Face Off on Facebook. You can follow us on Twitter. And always, if you appreciate us, we appreciate the reviews wherever you consume your podcast. Go ahead, leave us a rate, leave us a review, and let us know how we're doing. Returning to Legal Face Off, you know him. Get the Canon, getthecanon.com. Canon Lambert, a partner at Karchmar and Lambert. And joining us for the first time, Ariva Martin. Quite the bio here. Attorney, author, TV host, legal analyst for CNN, and the founding partner of Martin, Martin and Martin LLP. Welcome to the show, both of you. Thank you. Hey, thank you so thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks so much for jumping on. Um, the Amut Arbery case is really ongoing and seems to be new developments every day. So we're very fortunate to have you on. Uh, Ken, starting with you, you have obviously represented victims of over, overzealous police that also were caught on videotape. One notable case is, of course, um, the family of Sandra Bland, who you represented, uh, resulting from her 2015 arrest in Texas that was caught on dash cam video seen all across the world. Talk to us about what you see on this video involving Mr. Arbery that you believe points to the guilt of the defendants who have been charged with murder, the, uh, the McMichael father and son duo. Well, first and foremost, they were following him without real reason. Uh, you know, the, the whole notion that somehow they're in a position where they have Uh, the ability to be the arbiter as to whether or not he was where he was supposed to quote unquote be uh, is abhorrent to me. Uh, And then what's more, uh, the notion that they would be able to call into question what his intentions were, where are you going? And and that sort of thing is troublesome to me. It's very, very troublesome to me. Uh, And then over and above that, you think about the fact that he doesn't necessarily know these people and they've got guns and they're looking to try and uh, confront him. And so the thought is, well, what what would you expect other than that he would be afraid? And so when we talk about, for example, stand your ground laws that are likely to be, um, you know, invoked here, those were really designed to try and protect people like Mr. Aubrey. So, Ariva, the video shows a struggle between Aubrey and Travis McMichael and Gregory McMichael told police that he and his son had shouted to Mr. Aubrey to stop. The defense team will undoubtedly argue that instead of stopping, Arbery grabbed the gun and therefore the shooting was in self-defense. 
explain that defense, please, and whether you think it's viable at all in this instance. Yeah, I don't think that defense will be viable at all. Uh, The Georgia self-defense laws really aren't designed for the situation described by the defendants in this case. In this case, they initiated the contact. Uh, You can't initiate a confrontation with someone, and when that person tries to resist that confrontation, you then claim that you're somehow acting in self-defense. And I think that's what's so important here. Uh, As Cannon said, Mr. Arbery was... Uh, exercising his his freedom, his rights to jog uh, in this neighborhood. And these defendants had no right, no legal right uh, to stop him. We know that they've said that they were making a citizen's arrest. But the problem with that defense also is there was no crime being committed. And you don't get to stop someone and say, well, we think you may have committed a crime a week ago or two days ago or even two hours ago to the extent you're allowed to make a citizen's arrest. It's when you are actually witnessing the commission of a crime. And there was no crime being committed here. This was a, a let's call it what it was. It was a, an ambush by these defendants uh, of a law-abiding citizen who was going about his business uh, exercising in this community. So I, I don't think that a defense, as we should expect the defense to try to put forward, uh, will carry any credibility uh, with the jury, uh, assuming this goes to trial. And I definitely don't see it being one that the prosecutors will accept. Um, that's really interesting, Riva. Cannon, the video is so important in this case, obviously. We've now seen it many times. Um, you have, as I mentioned, dealt with many of these kind of situations where, you know, some of the video depicts what happened, but some of it is off camera. In this case, we see some of the struggle between these two men, but some of it is off camera. We hear rather than see some of it. When talking to a jury, it's so important, obviously, to tell a story. Um, talk to us about the challenge in telling this story to a jury and also not just explaining what they see on videotape, but what they don't see and filling in those blanks to a jury? Well, that's a, a great question. In essence, when you're trying to help a jury to understand a situation, you're trying to do so in its totality. When things are captured on video, it's very helpful, but there are naturally going to be pieces of information that are left out. Uh, and so you try and put context to those things. In this particular instance, we know that this this chase, this hunt went on for several, several blocks. We know that this hunt went on despite the fact that other people, little kids and couples at night had gone into this uh, this house that was under construction to look and just take a see what was going on there, uh, that they had done that just like Mr. Arbery had done. Uh, and so... There was nothing unusual about what he had done and should not have been the basis, quote unquote, for the the chase. And so when you start to contextualize what you actually saw, then you help people to be able to appreciate the totality of the circumstances. And I think it's so important to do that because you're right. There are instances where there are pieces of information that are left outside of uh, the cameras, um, but but that are helpful nonetheless. Ariva, the video was shot by William Bryan, who is a resident of the neighborhood where Mr. Arbery was killed. On Monday, the lawyer for Arbery's family reiterated his contention that because Bryan had participated in the chase and corralled Mr. Arbery, he should be arrested along with the McMichaels. Mr. Bryan released the results of a polygraph test that he alleges proves that he was unarmed at the time of the shooting and that he did not speak to the McMichaels before the pursuit. Should Brian be charged with the crime? Absolutely. He should be investigated. And those investigating, uh, you know, for the law enforcement agency that investigates him may come to the conclusion that he should be arrested. But one thing that is clear is his polygraph test, uh, assuming it's even valid. But the fact that he did not have a weapon does not mean he did not commit a crime. The fact that he did not confer with the other defendants does not mean he did not commit a crime. If he followed and chased uh, and used his car to block Mr. Arbery and somehow participated in that ambush that led to uh, Mr. Arbery's death, then in fact he did commit a crime and he should be held accountable for that. Uh, I think it's very curious uh, that he is, uh, you know, 
voluntarily, allegedly took this polygraph test and is trying to use that as some kind of evidence. But law enforcement agencies don't rely on your, uh, you know, your own evidence. That's why they are there. They are there to conduct a thorough and an impartial investigation. So you don't get to come forward and say, you know, I, I took a test and I'm telling the truth about a gun and therefore I shouldn't be arrested. Well, that's one piece of information. And yes, they should look at it and they should review it. A law enforcement uh, agents should review it, but that should not be dispositive uh, as to whether he is in fact uh, arrested and charged with participating in the death of Mr. Arbery. Ariva Martin, Kenny Lambert, thank you both. We appreciate your time here on WGN. We all know the legal world is complex and high pressure. There's no room for error. That's why judges and attorneys across Chicagoland have trusted the expert court reporters at McCorkle Litigation Services since 1948. McCorkle Litigation Services has accurately recorded every word from thousands of legal proceedings. McCorkle Litigation Services provides the legal community with peace of mind, transcribing testimony and depositions that can be used reliably by jurors, judges, and attorneys. For all of your legal support needs, contact McCorkle Litigation Services online at McCorkleLitigation.com. We roll along on Legal Faceoff here on WGN at WGNRadio.com. Returning to the show, Associate Professor of School of Accountancy and MIS at DePaul, and also the filmmaker of All the Queen's Horses, a documentary available now on Amazon Prime, The Returning, Kelly Richmond Pope. Welcome back, Professor. Thank you for having me back. So, Kelly, it's great to have you back. Um, we, When we last had you on the show, we talked about All the Queen's Horses, which profiles Rita Cronwell, who is the Dixon City Comptroller, who stole nearly $54 million over a 20-year period from the city to fund her horse breeding enterprise. She was sentenced to 17 years in prison uh, for wire fraud back in 2013. And this actually ended up being the largest case of municipal fraud in American history. Several weeks ago, Cronwell filed a petition in federal court in the Northern District of Illinois seeking compassionate release due to COVID from the federal prison camp in Beacon, where she is currently incarcerated. She filed the claim under the Federal First Step Act that addresses criteria for compassionate release into home confinement. Can you walk us through what the criteria are for compassionate release and whether she's met those criteria? Um, so, yes, she did um, file a petition and, um, you know, she has she's pretty she's pretty bold. Right. To just to at least ask. Right. The worst that can be the worst that can happen is that she's denied. So when you think about what the criteria are first, it's age and vulnerability. And so she meets that because she's currently 67 years old and she says that she has health issues and I'm sure she probably does. Um, security level is the second one and she's housed um, in a low security prison camp. And third is her conduct in prison. Believe it or not, she is a model inmate. And so for that reason, she's received a five month reduction for being a model prisoner. Um, the fourth one is she has a low female pat pattern score. So she hasn't gotten into any trouble. So if anybody out there watches uh, Orange or used to watch Orange is the New Black, she was not that person involved in any kind of altercations in, in prison. The fifth one is demonstrated and verifiability reentry. And so apparently she's picked up some new skills. I think she's doing some um, sewing and she can live with her brother in Dixon. So she did plan or does plan to go back to her hometown and the sixth one is inmate crime of convictions or a danger pose. So apparently she states that her crime did not pose a danger to the community. And when you think about that, you think about it in, in context, too. She wasn't um, uh, a sex offender. She wasn't a, a drug dealer. Those kinds of things. Did she offend the community by stealing money? Absolutely. But in the category of how they're looking at it, then um, she wouldn't be classified as a danger. So those are the six criteria. Now, the interesting thing about Rita is, or her, her appeal, is that she hasn't served 50% of her sentence. So she's about two years shy of that. So that's what the issue is. So if this were, if this happened in three years later, then she probably would be released. She probably could qualify. So that's why she's asking for the compassionate release because she hasn't served 50% of her um, sentence yet. 
Kelly, your film, your film, um, all the Queen's Forces really does an excellent job, as we've covered before on our show when you were last um, on, really, you know, diving not only into the nuts and bolts of the crime, but also some of the psychology behind it and some of the thinking behind it and the devastating effect it had on the community. And you know Rita Cronwell's, you know, mindset maybe as well as anyone. What do you, what do you think the fact that she has been a model prisoner, as you said, um, you know, is that consistent with what you know about her? And then secondly, is her trying to use COVID as a reason to get out of jail early, consistent with what you know about how she acts and how she has ripped off, you know, the good people of Dixon? So let me start by saying I've never met Rita. Um, so um, I don't think she really likes me. So I've written to her, um, but I'm probably not her favorite person. But um, I, I think that um, her trying to use COVID um, as a reason coincides with her manipulative type behavior. You know, here's an opportunity. So let me see if I can place this opportunity on me. And so I think that those behaviors are, are pretty consistent. And I also feel like she doesn't view what she's done as harmful and I think a lot of times in financial fraud situations where it's money and an entity, people often look at this being a distance. You know, I didn't steal someone's purse. You know, I didn't, I didn't vandalize someone's home. I didn't harm a person. So when it's just money, I think people are often able to say, yeah, no big deal. And I think that's her mindset of, I didn't really harm anybody. They didn't miss the money. They didn't know the money was missing in the first place and they were living fine. So what's the big deal? I really wasn't harmful to anyone. Um, her being a model citizen in prison, I think really matches how she's always been described in the interviews I was doing for the documentary. I mean, she was always described as a very quiet, mild-mannered, agreeable person. You know, she had this lavish type of style when she was performing in the horse um, arena. But overall, she was a nice person. So I wouldn't expect for her to go to jail and all of a sudden start being a troublemaker. So I think all of the things are consistent with the person that we that we um, knew. Um, I think what I found missing in her letter was her letter had a level of um, it had a lack of compassion. And I think that if she perhaps focused more on, I know what I did and these are the things and this is the harm that I did, but I'm better now, would have, I think, read better than the way she approached it. And so ironically, two days ago, uh, Rita's um, denied her request. So I think the public outcry was so strong. The residents of Dixon right into the judge, right into the warden at Pekin and saying, hey, no, she has not served her time. When she does her time, we'll forgive. She has not done her time. So I think this, the public outcry of that um, resulted in her um, withdrawing her petition under a compassionate release. So that was two days ago where it was filed. And this is all public record. And um, so, so she's going to stay put. Now, maybe she'll revisit this um, when she has completed the 50% of her sentence. And if COVID is still around, hopefully it won't be. But if it is, you know, maybe she'll have more of an argument. Um, so I don't think she's um, any different than um, any other prison, prison inmates trying to do the same thing. Um, if you have a time for it, a quick story, I'll tell you something that happened to a friend, a colleague of mine. Um, so you guys know I go around the country and I do interviews with white collar felons, whistleblowers and victims of fraud. And so a, a gentleman that I used to work with, um, by the name of Robert Lattice, he was an attorney in the Chicago area and, um, he's currently serving eight years in federal prison in Terre Haute, Indiana. And, um, he received, his family received a letter, uh, saying, Hey, come pick up Bob because he's going to be released due to COVID issues. We're letting nonviolent um, offenders out. And so his family thought that he was coming home. So they were preparing for him to come home. He has three kids. I think this oldest child might be 10. He has three young, so three little ones. And um, three days or so later, 
um, the attorney general changed. And that's when that 50 percent rule came out. And so Bob then found his family found a letter saying, hey, sorry, he's not coming home. And it was just like, oh, my goodness. So just to to think of to give someone that type of hope and then take it away. So, you know, there haven't been a lot of um, inmates that have been released um, due to COVID yet. I think it's like one point three percent of the population. So who knows where this will go? But um, I digress. So let me see where your next question is. Well, one last question on legal face-off real quick. Um, There's been mentioned that you were interested in interviewing Rita's brother. Is there any part of this story that is left to be told? And if there are any other projects you'd like to quickly share with us that you have in the pipeline, that would be great. Sure. Um, I would love to interview Rita or Rita's uh, family. You know, I think when I was doing the documentary, the beauty of documentary filmmaking is you can only tell the story that people will tell you. And so her family was not always a missing voice. And so just to understand how they are weathering the storm, they're still, they still live in Dixon. So, you know, how does it feel to be, Oh, there's Rita's sister. Like, how does it feel to be that person? So I would love, I'd welcome the opportunity um, because I wanted to always tell all sides of it. Um, so, um, so I think there's a lot of the story to be untold. I mean, We'd love to talk to Rita. Maybe she can come in on like legal face off, right? And you can talk to her. You know? Sam, we coming up next. Breaking uh, news. I don't have anything yet. But it would be great, right? I mean, Live you, from prison. You want to understand what in the world were you thinking? Like, how were you living so many years? You know, it had to be a level of stress that she was under. Um, so, so that so there's plenty of the story to be told, you know, how she maneuvered the horse industry is its own story within itself. So maybe one day there'll be a feature film and uh, we'll, we'll see it in the, in the movies. Who knows? Um, in terms of next projects, um, what I've been spending the past um, 18 year, 18 years, 18 months working on is um, a digital investigative platform that I just created with my I call her my co-brain. Um, Ronnie Jackson, and it's called Red Flag Mania. And it's, it's, it's this platform that allows people, those couch investigators out there, to look at a case and try to solve the case with all this evidence. So it's like a game slash simulation, but it's like a rip from the headlines kind of investigative experience. So I've been um, using that in my classrooms and um, doing these virtual investigative workshops now that we're in this virtual world. So that's what's been keeping me pretty busy. That's great. It's Kelly Richmond Pope, Associate Professor, School of Accountancy, MIS at the Paul, the documentary, All the Queen's Horses, available on Amazon Prime right now. Thank you, Professor, for your time. You are listening to Christina Martini on Legal Faceoff. Tina is a partner at McDermott, Will & Emery and focuses her practice on domestic and international trademark and copyright law, as well as domain name, internet, social media, advertising, and unfair competition law. Tina has received numerous professional accolades, including an AV preeminent rating by Martindale Hubble and being selected for many years as one of America's leading intellectual property attorneys by various legal publications, including Chambers and Partners and World Trademark Review. Tina is also the recipient of the Anti-Defamation League's Women of Achievement Award and has been recognized by Crane's Chicago Business as one of Chicago's most influential minority lawyers. In addition to her full-time practice, Tina is an author, columnist, legal analyst, and podcast host, and she frequently shares her thought leadership with respect to current issues and trends impacting both the legal and business landscapes through various media outlets. McDermott, Will & Emery is an integrated international law firm. McDermott has an uncompromising commitment to legal excellence, extraordinary client service, and a high-performance culture. It is committed to helping clients achieve stellar legal and business results today and well into the future. To contact Tina and to learn more about McDermott, Will & Emery, visit mwe.com. It's time for the legal grab bag on Legal Faceoff, and apparently it's time for a wardrobe change. Did we, which Lenkov has on the Hab sweater? Ken Dryden. Listen, we have to give it some context. Our friend Anakin, who is a good friend of mine, who is live from Montreal, is, uh, I would say, the world's most prominent Canadians fan, most prominent Expos fan. Uh, you can look them up on the internet. Some amazing videos paying tribute to the world's greatest hockey and baseball teams ever. And one of his videos is called Rock the Sweater that has, I don't know, a million views. Uh, and it's uh, a depiction of many prominent Canadians fans rocking the sweater, the best sweater 
in all of professional sports. And it can give us a, a sample of who who's on this video. We got none other than you might have heard Sam of Prime Minister Trudeau. Yeah, our Prime Minister. Yeah, yeah. Um, a bevy of celebrities. That's probably the only person they'll know. No, oh, Vigo Mortensen. Vigo Mortensen is in it. That's right. Yeah, uh, members of Simple Plan, the uh, punk group from the, about ten years ago. Absolutely. Who else is in it? George Strombolopoulos, who's a bit more Canadian. Um, <laughs> yeah, you know, it's more of a Canadian thing, but but. Vigo's in it, and that's all that matters. Check it out, Walt. I know you're a degenerate Phillies fan, but you got to check out these videos anyway. And Flyers and all those garbage things. Oh, yeah. The Flyers ruined a lot of our parties, I'll tell you that. Well, there you go. (laughs) We're all over the place. We're Chicago, we're Philadelphia, we're in Montreal. That's the aforementioned Anakin Slade. Very talented recording artist, actor, and the Freedom Fighting Montreal Expos. They, uh, They just never go away. And then also joining us, Walter McClatchy, who's been... An experienced trial counsel for years and the managing partner at McClatchy and Associates. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. You know the drill. Seven topics. Boom, boom, boom. Bang, bang, bang. And then maybe at the end we'll have time for a little surprise. But the first story comes from BBLfirm.com. That's Bryce downey Lenkoff firm.com. And it involves workers' comp law changes. But everyone loves to talk about it. I mean, it's actually not an advertisement. It's breaking news because um, among the many changes happening with covid uh, now that the Illinois legislature is back in session, actually, our friend Amanda Vitticke, longtime friend of the show, uh, was broadcasting earlier today on um, on uh, Facebook from Springfield, where the session, the Illinois legislators have gone back in session after being off for about sixty days. And what among the things they are going to put in place is workers' compensation reform. So this is not happening, not happening, not only in our state but across the country. And the issue, Tina, is you've got, you know, employees who are working, right? Frontline workers, first responders, but also retail workers, um, some teachers, a whole host of people. And there are states that are making it easier for these employees to recover and actually changing the laws in each state to make it, um, to change the burden of proof to make it much easier for people to recover. So the legislation that was introduced yesterday in Springfield in our state would actually make Illinois by far the most liberal state in the country. Illinois is already a really liberal state when it comes to workers' compensation, but it would greatly expand employees' uh, abilities to claim that COVID is related to work. From your perspective, Tina, do you think that it should be easier for employees to get benefits if they contract COVID? The question, obviously, and the reason why businesses are against it, is how do you prove legally that you contracted this virus from work versus anywhere else in the world? See, that's the critical question. And I think it's really difficult in certain scenarios to demonstrate that your employer and the conditions of where you work led to you developing COVID. And so I think that while it shouldn't be unduly hard for for plaintiffs or potential plaintiffs to prove their case, it shouldn't be so easy that we end up in a situation where we have, you know, millions of plaintiffs who are bringing claims against employers for, for claims that sometimes are just, I mean, you know better than I do, Rich, some of these claims are ridiculous. And You know, folks, I I just think that this is a situation that is unduly harsh on everybody right now. And I think it's one of those things where the rule of reason should end up prevailing. And so I think that this is a very um, difficult set of circumstances. And if we make it too easy for plaintiffs, we're just going to get bogged down in years of litigation. Yeah. And to that point, uh, Walt, uh, the numbers from California where Gavin Newsom has by executive order proclaimed it much easier uh, for employees to recover in these claims. The estimates are in the billions of of the cost to the insurance industry and to businesses in general. At a time when businesses are already facing incredible costs, many are going out of business. uh, What's Pennsylvania doing? And generally, what do you think of this additional burden, in my opinion, on on employers? Well, ironically, uh, in anticipation of this topic, uh, there was just a lawsuit filed in Philadelphia by a rather prominent uh, plaintiff's firm, uh, and they filed it for a death on the COVID, 
uh, the COVID-19 uh, uh, on Wrongful and Survival Act, Wrongful Death and Survival Act. And it's 180, actually I have the complaint in my hand, and it's 183 uh, paragraphs of uh, essentially saying that they put profits over safety uh, against the largest uh, meat factory or, uh, meat factories in the United States, which was uh, JBSSA out of Brazil, who uh, own, I guess, the majority interest of all meat, meat packing. Uh, and the one that they used was in Southerton, Pennsylvania, so they could avoid diversity jurisdiction in the federal courts and have the state courts denounce it, which at the same time, ironically, there was another lawsuit filed in uh, regarding COVID-19 in the federal court in Pennsylvania, which just today was dumped back to the state court because the federal court on a motion to dismiss uh, the diversity application was that stating that it was better for the state to decide under its laws which would be applicable than the federal uh, statutes being employed, uh, albeit that there really are none at the moment that would be going to leave them with federal jurisdiction. Um, Topic number two, let's, let's move there. We're going to keep this moving. Convicted ex-governor Rod Blagojevich, Rich, has been officially disbarred. So, yeah, um, Rod Blagojevich, uh, disgraced former Illinois governor who was pardoned by um, President Trump a few months ago and is now released from a Colorado prison back home, back on the north side of Chicago, um, was disbarred formally. Uh, this week by the Illinois Supreme Court, uh, file this under the no shit Sherlock category of the show, because uh, as Blagojevich himself mentioned, I mean, he said, you know, picture yourself on an airplane and you realize the pilot is not licensed. That's what me practicing law would be like. So really a formality. He didn't really show. He actually didn't show up for the hearing a couple of months ago. So no surprise. And he wasn't practicing law, you know, even uh, the last 20 or so years of his career, he was in politics, but no surprise to anyone that Blago, but one surprise, one thing that we should know about is uh, he's starting a podcast. Tina, he's got uh, one of the many people trying to follow in the wake of legal face off and, you know, espouse his thoughts on the podcast. I, I, I think now more than ever, we've got to have him on our podcast. Yeah. Now he's a free man and he's, a, he's a fellow podcaster we should most certainly have him as a guest on our podcast. Anakin, how does, uh, how does this story resonate in Canada? Canada has had its own political issues, especially in the last year with Prime Minister Trudeau, but does this get any play down, uh, up in uh, my home country where you are? No, it's the first I've seen of it. Uh, the, Justin is still getting over his Aladdin blackface scandal. Uh, I don't know if you guys heard about that <laughs> Absolutely. one. Absolutely. Yeah, so uh, so I think that the uh, the virus hit in the right time for him because everybody is is praising his reaction uh, to to the virus so far. So it's kind of like uh, I think maybe outside of uh, your president and this guy, uh, politicians are are doing pretty well at least uh, in our country. Our premier of Quebec is getting a lot of praise for the way he's reacted and. Uh, people are forgetting all the uh, all the um, questionable activities they've done in the past couple of years. Topic number three involves a law firm getting hacked, and Tina, it involves a pretty famous entertainer. Yes. So last week, the law firm Grubman Shire, that is really um, an entertainment law firm that is representing a who's who of entertainers, including J Lo, David Letterman, Springsteen, Nicki Minaj. And um, they ended up getting hacked by, um, they were the victim of the ransomware that has actually been getting a lot of press over the last few months called the Revil ransomware. And what happened was they got into the law firm system and they threatened that if the law firm didn't pay $21 million, that they would release confidential information that was on the servers of the law firm and the law firm refused to pay the money. So as promised, they ended up relating about two and two and a half gigabytes of data relating to Lady Gaga. So um, they made a very public announcement on the dark web and said that um, they've upped the ante now and they're asking for $42 million. And they actually claim that they have a bunch of documents relating to President Trump. So in addition to Lady Gaga, we now have President Trump, whose name 
has been thrown into the mix. And um, they also claim that they're going to be auctioning on the dark web some confidential information relating to Madonna. So if the ransom doesn't get paid, which the law firm claims they're working with, um, you know, the authorities, the FBI and so forth. So they claim that they don't pay um, they don't pay in these instances. It's illegal in certain instances to pay ransom. And so it's going to be interesting to see how this unfolds. But um, I'm interested to hear what they've got on the president. That's for sure. Yeah, well, we've covered these stories before, you know, obviously not the first law firm that's been hacked and uh, from whom ransom has been tried, has been um, threatened to not, not the first law firm. What, what are your thoughts on this? And Obviously, we're all, you know, more um, concerned about cybersecurity than... Well, actually, in Pennsylvania, it's now a violation of your license if you get, if you get hacked. And any, anything it gets uh, taken. So you could lose your license over that. Uh, I'm sort of curious as to how Madonna sort of ups the number for the... <laughs> I mean, <laughs> seriously. <laughs> Who would want her information? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Maybe some, uh, some interesting five million dollars to her information <laughs> or, or videos. Um, I just want to know how you get on the dark web to see all this stuff. <laughs> and it can obviously law firms have a lot of sensitive information, uh, prime targets for hackery. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think it's interesting that uh, you know we're living in a time where you you have to protect yourself so much, and uh, yeah, it's. So much information going back and forth. I was just, I actually went on, I have my little camera blocker on the, the computer and I, I don't even know. I was advised to do that at one point, but I have no idea what that could possibly get me in trouble for. Maybe my eye scan or <laughs> whatever, <laughs> retinal scans, right? So, but I was just thinking about that now, you know, and, and of course all the controversy with Zoom where apparently Zoom is extremely easy to hack and uh, interrupt conversations and there have been cases of you know, uh, racial slurs popping up randomly in Zoom conversations and stuff like that. So it's, uh, it's, it's a really interesting time for that. And I remember when I first moved to L.A., one of the things um, that was really sold to me by a lot of people was uh, protection, you know, uh, online protection. I was, there was every organization, I would meet people in bars or whatever, and they'd be like, hey, are you protected on your Gmail? Are you, and I was like, you know, because I was a quasi celebrity. So they would go after all those people. And I was just like, wow, this is really not what I expected LA to be like. <laughs> so really interesting time. And I can sympathize with somebody like Madonna, who probably has quite a few demons and uh, she doesn't want to get out there. So you're speaking of uh, camera blockers. Here's my very intricate uh, system. And I was at a conference, <laughs> I was at a conference a while ago and there were, you know, all these Vendors give away stuff, and one of them was giving away a camera blocker. I told them, like, you realize you've invested all this marketing money, and your competition is a post-it note. Post-it note. Yeah. yeah. Hang on. There we go. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> yeah, it's really, really sharp. Yeah. It's good. It's good. up Zoom. That takes us to our next topic. We're more than halfway home here. They did something wild in the state of Texas, a jury trial by Zoom. Yeah, this week, uh, speaking of opening up, uh, there's a court in Texas that is going to have a jury trial by Zoom. Um, you know, jurors will be at home and, and, and phoning and, and Zooming in. Um, you know, we'll see if this takes hold. I mean, right now in Illinois, as in most states, courts are shut down. Um, I had a jury trial scheduled in, in June that's continued. I couldn't really picture doing a jury trial by Zoom. It's one thing. I'm having mediation tomorrow, for example, by Zoom. That's fine. Depositions are fine. But an actual jury trial, you know, part of the sort of mystery and magic of a jury or, or the system is that you get to speak to them and engage with the jury. And these are just 12 normal people, not experts. And that relationship you forge over a day or a week or a year is so important. I don't see how you can really do that justice by Zoom. On the other hand, listen, there's a backlog of cases even in the last two or three months that we've been away and, you know, things need to proceed. So I'm interested to see how this jury trial goes. The one, you know, one of the big challenges will be keeping the jurors engaged, even when you're standing in front of them and you're presenting evidence. Half of them are asleep because it's boring stuff. So imagine, you know, 
doing that by Zoom, it's going to be even more challenging. But Tina, do you think this will uh, this will uh, take hold, and we'll see other jurisdictions? Well, I think that it depends on how quickly the states open up, right? Um, and assuming that it really is not going to be um, possible to have this sort of environment, the normal environment of a jury trial, I do think it'll take hold. I do think it's critically important for there to be some meets and bounds and 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 restrictions and requests made of people. Um, for example, I think having them on camera or some other means so that you know that they're not wandering off, you know that they're not flushing their toilets, so to speak, like we heard about a few days ago, right. uh, just to make sure that they're, that they have the same level of attention that they would have in person is what's really important. Well, what's uh, Pennsylvania doing on this? Well, to give you an idea, I'm in Philadelphia County. I'm a judge pro tempore, which means they appoint me as a temporary judge. And for example, tomorrow I have two settlement conferences and I actually have, they've upped it to, I do a pretrial conference, which is I can rule on the evidence that's going to be admitted into trials. Although they just entered an order in Philadelphia, for example, there'll be no jury trials until probably October. But frankly, I don't think there's going to be another one this year unless it's done in Zoom. But actually, which we just got, I just got an assignment of 40 arbitrations uh, that they'd like me to do, where we're going to be bypassing, generally speaking, it's up to $50,000 around here uh, in arbitrations uh, for cases. And instead of three arbitrators, I'll be the arbitrator. So I'll make the decision on the case and to clear the docket out because they have too many thousands of them that have been or backed up because they generally schedule it 40 a day. Wow. And can ever serve on a, ever, ever serve on a jury there in uh, No, I haven't actually. I've managed to avoid that uh, <laughs> before. But it's interesting how, you know, how many companies are going to look back fondly at this period in history. And the one that immediately jumps out is Zoom. I mean, I'm not even sure I, I knew exactly what Zoom was before, <laughs> before yeah. all this happened. And uh, they've clearly jumped to the forefront. Uh, like, this is, this is going to be their golden age, you know? And it's, it's crazy to think that. I thought Spotify, like, as a musician, I was thinking, oh, okay, maybe I'll see an uptick in plays. Everybody's going to be home listening to music. And it's not the case at all. It's, it's, you realize that people listen to music when they're in their cars, they listen to music, you know, sometimes at work on their headphones and stuff like that. And, and you're, yeah, I haven't seen, if anything, I've seen my streams go down. So it's, uh, is, is it interesting to see that zoom is going to come out of this as a, a clear winner? So the Titanic, not the movie, the ship, it's been over a hundred years since it went down in the Atlantic, 1912. Yet here we are in 2020 talking about a ruling involving said Titanic. I don't understand it, but I'm the dumbest one in the room. <laughs> yeah, Sam, I'll never let go. You know that. Um, a federal judge has ruled that the company that owns the rights to the Titanic uh, memorabilia can now go down there and cut a hole in the ship and pull out the uh, telegraph machine that was used to SOS the uh, you know, the, 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 the emergency message uh, back in 1912 when it hit an iceberg. Uh, in, what, 2000, there was an order that said you can't touch it. It's, you know, historically important and um, you don't want to um, disrupt this artifact. Uh, but now the federal judge in charge has said you can go down there and pull this out. Um, so let's go around and, and, and ask, you know, what your thoughts are on the subject. I personally... I'm a huge fan of history, of artifacts. I collect a bunch of things, as you can probably see. And I'm actually, I'm ups I love the Titanic. I'm so interested in um, seeing it. I've seen a ton of the exhibitions, as I'm sure a lot of you have seen. And the idea that you would see the actual telegraph machine, you know, from well over 100 years ago, to me, is so educational and so important historically far more important than, you know, lying on the bottom of the Atlantic. So, Tina, yes or no on pulling out this piece? Well, I, I mean, bottom line, I am supportive of it, but I have to say there are a couple of things that distinguish it from the analysis done 20 years ago. 20 years ago, they were talking about excavating diamonds, mm -hmm. very different proposition than we're talking about today, which is to excavate the telegraph. What I'm wondering is why it took so long for us right. to be having a conversation about excavating the telegraph. But I do think that it's important that we're mindful of the families um, whose, whose um, family members perished in this, that in many ways this is compared to going to a cemetery. 
it is a grave in the sea. And so people feel very strongly about disrupting what is in effect an underwater cemetery. And so it sounds like they can do this in a way that is not disruptive. And I think that's pretty critical to the analysis here. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, Anakin, Walt, what are your thoughts on this? Would you be on the uh, submarine going down to grab this? Uh, I wouldn't be on the submarine, no, because I hate water. But uh, I, I definitely think that, you know, there's so many mysteries about uh, such an important uh, iconic moment in our history that, you know, if you can, if you can piece together little things and um, we know a little bit more, I think, I think that's as much a tribute to the people that uh, were lost as well as just knowing exactly what happened and, and uh, trying to piece it together for, to tell future generations the story. And uh, I think, you know, obviously I can't relate. I didn't lose anybody in the Titanic, but uh, I, I feel like uh, those people might appreciate a clear telling of the story and that's what your job is as a historian and an explorer so i say uh yeah without completely desecrating it i think it's good to 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 get what you can out of it walt as someone who was actually on the titanic tell us um yeah. <laughs> how you feel <laughs> well go down there or leave it alone I, Tina I, is a good point it's you know it does contain Presumably, the remains of, I mean, I'm not sure if remains last all these years, but it is in many ways a, a, a cemetery. I think so long as you don't disrupt uh, other aspects of it. Uh, the thing that marvels me the most is how come that can retain a message that was sent out when many of us can't keep messages that we have on our phones or anything <laughs> else. <laughs> very yeah, I'm so not are, you a, uh, are you a Titanic fan? What's your, uh, you love the... Uh, the painting scene in the, tit in the Titanic. <laughs> I know that for I'm sure. Up, you know, too, that's your favorite. That's on your rewatchables list for I, sure. The I've got that right over there on my living room wall. Or the, the handprint scene on the on the window. That's your big crush on Leo too. Big Leo fan. Um, let's transition into this one. This will be fun. The day we've all waited for. Tiffany Trump has graduated from law school. Now, yes, first, she has. Uh, first uh, Kardashian and now Trump. You know. Yes, I know. So Tiffany Trump just graduated Georgetown. Uh, she the uh, ceremony was virtual last Saturday and in true Trump form, she hit social media. So she was Instagramming and she was tweeting um, congratulatory remarks to her fellow classmates. What I found really funny was that her father, our esteemed president, took to 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 uh, tweeting to her earlier today to congratulate her um, and um, said that he's very proud of her and it's good to have a lawyer in the family. So um, it's funny, I actually have a very close friend whose um, son just graduated from Georgetown Law School too. So that was all the news when they first started law school was that Tiffany Trump was in the class. So um, kudos to her and I wish, wish her well and hope that uh, she's able to put that law degree to good, to good news. Maybe no, no, her dad out. Maybe she'll join her dad's legal team. Do you wish her well? Really? I do wish her well. Does the world need more adult Trumps? <laughs> She's a lawyer. Of course we need more. She might be the first one with actual credits that, that are actually helpful. Maybe she'll be the first. Yeah. Imagine the damage that she's going to do to our legal system once she joins the bar. I was impressed with uh, Barron. I was looking at some of the pictures. Barron's a strapping young man. He's, he's taller than... Uh, than Don, than Donald. He's only 14. <laughs> Walt? Good for him. <laughs> Walt, will you hire? It's a tough job, Mark. Would you hire Tiffany if she comes knocking on McClatchy Law doors? Uh, well, no, I'd have to have her pay in for that. <laughs> I think she has more money than we do. <laughs> the, uh, I, my daughter went to Georgetown undergrad, so the only thing I can say as a Villanova grad, we have uh, not great feelings about Georgetown. <laughs> Anakin, uh, the Trump name is not so popular in Canada. No, no, we're, yeah, we, you know, it's, I mean, what can you say? The guy, the guy is just, he's a special man. He's amusing. That's for sure. Like he's, he's definitely the focus of a lot of our entertainment. Like what would we, what would, we're going to miss him when he's gone. Let's be honest. We're going to miss him because he was so entertaining, Absolutely. but I, that's coming from a Canadian. I know you guys actually have to live with him. <laughs> I'm legal face off here on the legal grab bag. <laughs> I can't believe this. 
Law.com with the details on a new class, a free summer class on Seinfeld and the law. And I love the name, the Yada Yada Law School. It's true. I, and I can tell you it's true because I signed up for the class this afternoon before the show. <laughs> so it is a 10-week class that's um, once a week starting on June 3rd, and it runs every Wednesday at 1 Eastern, and it covers the full gamut of all the different main subjects of law. And I got to tell you, I am just so thrilled by it. We've got folks that are the Newman USPS Professor of Law, the J. Peterman Chair in Jurisprudence, <laughs> the Jackie Childs Chair in Constitutional Criminal Procedure. I mean, you've got all the main characters in some of the best episodes that all these professors that are actually from different law schools are paying homage to some of the best characters and best episodes of Seinfeld. So I'm very excited. This is going to be um, my, the highlight of my summer, especially if we maintain our, some, our somewhat status of lockdown here in Chicago. I may have nothing more to look forward to than to be part of the yada yada law school class. This picture rips like there's an important meeting at Tina's firm and they're trying to get a hold of her and she's in yada yada law school. Like they can't reach her for that hour or two because she's busy in Seinfeld law. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, it just proves that, you know, you can learn a lot from TV. And I, I was thinking of some Seinfeld episodes that have a parallel to the law. There's so many when you think about it and not just the overt ones, like, you know, the last episode where they all go to jail. But, you know, when you think of things like one of my favorites is um, the big salad, right? When uh, George buys the big salad for his girlfriend, but Elaine actually is the one who hands it to her. Um, you know, that's a good example of fraud. You know, she is. And it's also conversion. Well, when you think about it, she's actually taking someone else's property and using it as if it's her own. So it was just, a great example of conversion. It wasn't just misrepresentation. It was intentional. Fraud. It was actually it was absolutely intentional. She did it over and over again. You get a yada yada diploma. You can't yada yada the law, though. You can, certainly cannot yada yada legal face off. We know that. Anakin, you're a science. You're a little bit young for Seinfeld, but no, 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 no. I grew up with that. Yeah, I'm more of a yada yada point nine. <laughs> I'm actually more of a curb guy. I love I love curb your enthusiasm. Curb I'm is a, I'm classic. A, it's still great. When they make the curb school, maybe I'll get my degree finally. And breaking news from uh, our booker Emily Flores, she tells me that we have booked University of Iowa law professor Gregory Schill, the mastermind behind. The Yada Yada Law School. So we'll be covering this more on our next episode of Legal Face Off on uh, on June fourth. But um, let's go around the room quickly and end off with everyone's favorite either Seinfeld character or or episode or saying or whatever. Sam, you're up. Come on, go ahead. Well, I thought about this after Jerry Stiller passed away, and I actually thought of you then too. When Steinbrenner calls and says that George is dead, he just goes. <laughs> How could you trade Jay Buna? How could you do it? <laughs> like, they think George is dead, and the old man just cares about George Steinbrenner trading away Jay Buna for the Mariners. It's a great Jay Buna reference, among the many in the 90s TV. All right, Walt, favorite uh, line, character, episode, whatever. For the rest of us, yeah. Best of us for the rest of us, yeah. Feats of strength. Anakin? Well, Sam stole mine. And the Jay Buner one is, has always been my favorite. But uh, anything with Steinbrenner and uh, Peterman. Peterman is the man. Like, he's just you, – anything he says, you just you just chuckle. So uh, I, I would definitely take that class, the Peterman class. Gina. Okay, I've got a few, and I'll rattle them off quickly. <laughs> you want a piece of me? That whole scene is classic. Um the um, few silly Jerry, just that whole line when Kramer's doing movie phone. That's another one of my favorites. Well, um, why don't you just tell me the movie you want to see? <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, obviously classic. And you want to be my latex salesman when George comes running out with his pants down. I mean, that's and you want to be my latex salesman. That one's great. I love my favorite line. And I'm like a Seinfeld uh, obsessed but my favorite line in the history of seinfeld is the whale episode and the best line is um when they're in the restaurant after and george says 
The sea was angry that day, my friends. <laughs> you know, like, a, like an old man trying to return soup at a deli. <laughs> to me, that's just a great line. Um, but yeah, we'll be cut. I, I, quick, another quick Seinfeld story is I watched the taping of um, an episode in L.A. when I was out there clerking. And it was the episode where, um, where uh, what's his name? Uh, Joe Davola, crazy Joe Davola, jumps off the yeah. stage right as they're taping anyway i saw that episode and afterwards i stole the nameplate and i still have it in my office like 25 years later so i know seinfeld is an avid listener to legal podcast the statute of limitations has run but i've got his uh nameplate in my office somewhere they extended it five more years absolutely <laughs> well and if we leave with us we leave with a uh, seinfeld impersonation sam you know well who are these people Roll gold! It's neither rolled nor gold! What yes. is it? Anyway, that's, I could go off for hours. That was pretty good. Walter Anakin, thank you so much for joining us on Lincoln Face Off. Thank Thanks you very much. So wait, rock the sweater. For rock Tina, sweater. my name is Sam. Thanks to Ben and Emily and Gabrielle and everybody involved. We'll talk to you in June here on LFO. It's Christina Martini and Rich Linkoff. You know what time it is. Welcome to Legal Face Off. Two lawyers trading jab for jab, so hit them up with any questions you have. WGN Radio, we blowing up your stereo. Got a question? Just pick up the phone and they'll let you know. Covering sports, Hollywood, and don't forget.